podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Cricket scorecards aren't like other sports. They don't just give you the result, they give you a bit of story. 1-0, 112 plays 111, 64, 6-3, 5-7, 6-4. These other scoreboards can tell you how close the game was and the result, but not much more. They are tweets. Cricket scorecards are novels. You can find out who killed the butler in the billiards room with a candlestick if you know how to read them. They unfurl in front of you. And while they can't tell you everything, they give you something. And when paired with reports of the day, you get an idea of basically what happened. The entire summer of 1968 in England doesn't make much sense to me. The scorecards seem to say one thing and the reports another. That's not unheard of. Sometimes the scorecard is wrong. And sometimes the journalists are. In the case of Basil D'Oliveira, something has never quite added up. It's possible that no one ever knew the full story. Almost all of the people involved have passed on. And there were so many different people who it seems never wanted the full story, or at least their part of it, to ever come out. Even Peter Oborn's book, which will get as close as probably anyone ever will, can tell us only so much. But what we know is this, what happened doesn't add up when you look at the scorecard. And I like scorecards. This is Double Century, the Cricket History Podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. This is Season 2, and we're talking about cricket and race. And today we're going to go back to the Basil Dolavira story. In Episode 2, we ended up talking about the journalists questioning Basil Dolavira's bowling. And it's not that they were wrong. It's just that maybe it wasn't the right question. Wisden once wrote, The man himself was not a secular saint or a political campaigner. He was, above all else, a cricketer. But once you add this amount of politics and intrigue, and in some cases, government skullduggery, you start to understand that you can't just treat Dolavira like a cricketer. We have to look over his record in a way that we wouldn't for other cricketers. And the weird thing was that that didn't seem to happen that much from the cricket writers of their day. Now, there was one thing that I think the cricket journalists got right. In that first Ashes test, Dolavira should never have been one of England's frontline four bowlers. But To use that to overlook the fact that he actually bowled okay in that first innings versus Australia and very well in the brief amount of time he was allowed in the second innings, I find very odd. And I want to focus on another bowler in this match. Jon Snow was opening the bowling with Ken Higgs. A couple of years earlier, they had put on 128 for the 11th wicket. Snow never quite became the legend he should have because he upset pretty much everyone in cricket, but he's at least fairly well known. Higgs is barely mentioned anymore, but he's worth looking at. And Higgs moves in from the grandstand end to bowl to Redpath. Higgs is able to move the ball away and Redpath plays and misses. Proof that there's some early life in this pitch. In 15 tests, he averaged 20 with the ball and then he just never played again. In first class cricket, he took 1,536 wickets at 23. That's handy, but there is one completely awesome thing about Higgs. Even though he was a seamer, his first class career lasted 28 years starting in 1958 and finishing in 1986. And the reason he was still playing in 86 is Leicestershire brought him back to play when he was 49 years old and one of their coaches. He bowled first against Yorkshire and took 5 for 22 as a 49-year-old. In that game, Phil de Freitas played, who played his last first-class game in 2005. In 1958, Higgs played with Cyril Washbrook, who made his first-class debut in 1933. I mean, it's just weird and beautiful. And that first Ashes test of 68 and Old Trafford was also Higgs' last test. He's not mentioned at all in the Wisdom Report. 
Remember, unlike Dolivera, he was a full-time bowler with an already great short test record. And in that match, he bowled 58.3 overs, taking two for 121. They were both dropped for the next test. But when you compare Dolivera's figures against that of a full-time bowler with a test average of 20, he looks even more impressive. Looking back at this from modern day, this seems to be a fairly textbook case of what we talk about today in the different ways that white and black athletes are treated by the media. Often a non-white player has to be perfect, and if they aren't, subconsciously and sometimes consciously, white journalists look for imperfections or just accentuate the negative. Essentially, the problem is in the framing. In that first test against Australia in 68, Dolivera made 87 not out on a tricky pitch in the fourth innings. He contributed two wickets at a corpse-like economy rate, while being underbowled in his second innings with great figures. Even if he was used out of place as a bowling all-rounder, the questions shouldn't have been this loud. The more obvious narrative here really should have been the encouraging signs that Dolivera found runs on a tricky pitch. You might also point out that he should never have been a frontline bowler looking at his previous stats but it was weird that he still didn't bowl more in that second innings. Those questions really don't ever seem to have been written about in that era. And when I see treatment like this and a scorecard of stats that confuse me, I feel like I'm missing something, like the scorecard is lying to me. But as almost everything is with Basil Dolivera, this is far more confusing because there are three major things at play here. The same kind of treatment that Jofra Archer and English footballers receive today. The politics of the situation. There is no doubt that the MCC were leaking against him. And cricket writers often have a hive mind. The narrative takes hold, and then that's it. It's not that players coming off 87 not out have never been dropped before, especially with the confusing county and West Indies form that Dolivera already had. But they obviously backed him enough to pick him despite that. And then he was dropped having had, objectively, a good game of cricket. When you drop someone like Dolivera, an obvious test talent, after he's made a score with the most obvious political iceberg right in front of you, It's not like Higgs being dropped. This was a selection move heard around the world. And as often is the case in cricket, timing is important here. Dolivera was only told on the morning of the second test. And that was after two men connected to the MCC, one was the journalist EW Jim Swanton, came to Dolivera and suggested that he pull out of the upcoming test series to South Africa. He said no to both men and went about his duty as 12th man. Then Doug Insull introduced Dolivera to Wilfred Isaacs, a South African businessman. Insol was a selector. So two people had asked him not to tour South Africa, and he was introduced to a South African, who to be fair said he'd be treated well if he toured, by an English selector. I mean, that's odd. Oh, and of course, he was dropped, with 87 not out in his very last innings. But selection is never straightforward, and England made a few changes. Ken Barrington came back into the side, and he averaged 58 in test cricket. And of all the guys with a high 50s average, there are probably none who are talked about less today. Colin Milburn also came in, which is a bit more confusing as they already had good openers in the team, but Milburn would have been a great had he not lost an eye in a car accident. His test average is 46, but his first class average was 33. In two seasons, because of that eye, he never went past 20. But at that time, you had one all-time great and one player in the middle of a great form surge. But neither of those players were all-rounders. There was also a player who came in called Barry Knight, who Doug Insole believed to be the best all-rounder in England. Knight was more of a bowling all-rounder than Dolivera, but just looking at their records, it was clear that Dolivera was a better player. Part of the problem of England's bowling lineup in that first test was Dolivera was playing as that fourth bowler. He took a wicket per test and only 1.5 wickets per first-class match. He was no one's idea of a fourth bowler. 
But Knight took 2.4 wickets a match, and sure he wasn't anywhere near the batsman, but if you wanted a fourth bowling option, he was certainly better than Dolavira. But cricket writers didn't have instant access to this kind of information back then. And that's also not how cricket was written about. Even now, if you look at Wikipedia, it says this, the replacement for Dolavira, Barry Knight, performed well in his second test. Knight made 27 not out in his first innings, and he took three for 16 in the first and none for 35 in the second, and he didn't bat again. That three for 16 was good, but Australia were already three for 23 when he took his first wicket. They were mid-collapse, and he did pick up a few wickets, so. His 27 not out was decent and long, but England were five for 271 when he walked into bat. That's not to downplay his performance, but it's weird how one man was talked up and the other one down, when in truth, I'd suggest that they had pretty similar games. And Knight took one more wicket in his next test, added seven more runs from two innings, and was dropped as well. And anytime you talk about Dolavira's selection or Barry Knight's selection, you also have to talk about the fact that this was England making the selection. England had a very odd version of selecting. It never really made a lot of sense. Have a look at the amount of cricketers that they have played compared to Australia. Up until, well, Darren Pattinson played for England, it was still very, very random the way that England selected test players. For instance, in that 1968 series, a five-test series, England used 20 players. Unless there was a rash of injuries, and I didn't notice that in any of the reporting, the selectors were just very poor at their jobs and panicking. But obviously there was more at play here than just crazy English selection. Dolavira was offered a £4,000 coaching contract through a South African tobacco company. And there is no way to ever be sure on this, but being that it was an obscene amount of money and the timing was absolutely perfect and it came from a South African company, you can certainly suggest that it was a bribe not to play. Perhaps a ploy to make sure he didn't tour at all. Did it come directly from the government? Perhaps we'll never know. But it seemed odd that that was the time he was offered that amount of money. And it was an incredible amount of money for a man in his position. Considering his age, he was probably around 40 at that stage, either just almost 40 or just over 40. And he talked about it with his agent, legendary newsman Reg Hater, and they decided that he was so close to the squad that he'd be silly to make a decision beforehand. Back in county cricket, though, Dolavira didn't really force anyone's hand for the rest of the summer. From early June to mid-August, Dolavira made 205 runs at just 12.81, while England managed to draw the second, third, and fourth tests with their collection of 20-odd players. It meant that by the time they got to the last test, they were only 1-0 down. Oh, and it was before that last test that the MCC contacted the top 30 cricketers in the country to see if they were available for their South African tour should be pointed out that Dolavira was not contacted. Seems like quite a fall from 87 not out to not being in the best 30 players in your country. In county cricket, finally Dolavira made some runs. And shortly after that, Colin Cowdery thought that medium paces might be handy on the oval surface. Dolavira wasn't the first choice, Knight was, and then Tom Cartwright, but neither were available due to injury. And here is where the story twists again. Roger Perdue was an opening batsman who debuted in the previous test making 64 runs. According to Peter Oborn's book on Basil Dolavira, which is where many of these facts come from, Purdue was so nervous that he thought he might not be picked for South Africa that he pulled out of the final test. So it meant that England had to change its lineup, and what do you know, they had a spare batsman in the squad. At 238 for four, Dolavira entered the match. It was just before stumps, a huge overcrowd was watching, the MCC was watching, the South African government was watching. Everyone wanted to know what would happen next. Four. That's that shot of Dolavira's. That is a lovely shot. That's four runs. Dolavira hooked and made it to Stumps, 23 not out. 
The next day, he was dropped on 31. And not just dropped by anyone, but Barry Jarman, who would play 19 tests for Australia and only average 14 with the bat. But he was so respected for his glove work that he kept getting picked. Dolavira's partner, John Edrich, and the umpire, Charlie Elliott, both encouraged him on. As he made his 50, Elliott whispered to him, Well played. My God, you're going to cause some problems. And once set, Dolavira done what he had always done. He played aggressively and made a 100. When he reached his 100, Elliott exclaimed, Oh, by God, you've put the cat amongst the pigeons now. It wasn't a great knock. He was dropped several times. He looked nervous and unsure, and he had certainly made far better hundreds. But he would never make another hundred like this in cricket again. Perhaps no one would. There are many who suggest that this hundred actually helped change the world. Cynically, I look back at the fact that if this was going to change things, it would have happened far sooner, and that cricket would have stopped going to South Africa eventually anyway. But maybe I'm underselling it. Perhaps without something as big as this, then apartheid could have kept on creeping. It certainly changed things in cricket. And cricket was one of the major sports in the world at that point. And South Africa was still due to tour England in 1970. And Australia were due to tour them after that. And South Africa had a tour of Australia after that. Had this not kicked off, Australia, who were still very much a racist country themselves, if not as publicly as South Africa, would have probably kept the tour on. Instead, Bob Hawke, a union leader who would later become prime minister, was summoned to Don Bradman's house. This is Hawke on the meeting. I went out to his home in Kensington Gardens and he said, Bob, I don't think politics should come into sport. And I said, I couldn't agree with you more, Don. We haven't brought politics into sport. It's the government of South Africa which has brought politics into sport because the government of South Africa has a policy that no person who isn't white is allowed to represent their country in sport. That's bringing politics into sport. Hawke went on to say, he then looked at me for about 30 seconds and then he said, I've got no answer to that, Bob. Where's that going? Is it out to the boundary? Who's there? Out. Caught. Caught by Dolavira. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. Does Bradman even call Hawke without the Dolavira 100? I mean, until that point, it wasn't like anyone thought there was a bunch of black cricketers being oppressed. Now, this isn't cricket, but I want to tell you about Faisa Lalisa, who crossed the Rio Olympics line in, well, more ways than one. He held his arms across the front of his body to symbolize handcuffs and to bring attention to a domestic issue in Ethiopia. The Oromo people were suffering decades of systemic exclusion and subordination in Ethiopia. In 2009, a report titled Human Rights in Ethiopia Through the Eyes of the Oromo Diaspora dropped, and it didn't make that much of a splash. The UN said that people were dying, but again, it didn't cut through. And when the Oromo people protested, Ethiopia declared a state of emergency and there was another massacre of the Oromo. Well, it turns out that Lilisa was Oromo, so he felt passionately about his people being persecuted. So he put his career, and essentially his life, in jeopardy to protest. In one gesture, something as simple as crossing his arms, he got more attention than the UN or any human rights body ever. That's because people watch sports. He knew he couldn't go back to Ethiopia. He knew he was putting his life in danger, but he changed the coverage. And eventually, through the actions of many, the Oromo people on the ground and the pressure from Lalisa's protest, Ethiopia changed within a couple of years. That didn't happen with Dolavira. Even with England being involved and cricket, the most conservative sport walking away, it had to have an effect, but it didn't change straight away. But I'm willing to say that Dolavia's 100, and I suppose by default, Jarman's drop, are the most impactful moments in cricket history. 
The test, well, it had a dramatic end. It rained a lot and fans were out on the ground helping mop up. Derek Underwood took a few quick wickets and uh, Dolivero broke a tricky six-wicket partnership himself. Doug Insull, the MCC chairman of selectors, asked Dolivero if he was available to tour South Africa. And Colin Cowdery, the captain, made it clear that he wanted him in his team. It now looked like he would have to be picked to play against his old country. But that day he made his 100, that monumentous day for cricket, a message had been passed to the MCC. If today's century is picked, the tour will be off. Thank you for listening to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. If you like this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. Also, any way that you could share it really helps us. We are an independent production. And if you want to help support us more, we have a Patreon in the show notes. And a huge thank you to those who already donate to us. Double Century is a team effort. Nick McCorriston is our producer and editor. Abhishek Mukherjee and Bertie Moores are our fact checkers. And the series is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Thank you for listening. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Balburnie, Tamal Mill, Sean Massoud, and Alex Hartley. It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Sports Social Podcast Network.